Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Social anxiety is this fear of evaluation from other people. You are afraid people think you're ugly, strange, stupid, dumb, weird, unlovable. And the core childhood experience I had was this fear that people think I am strange and different. Mm -hmm. But then the thing I learned was that fear that I had, everyone else had that, including some super popular kids who I was like, How can you possibly believe this thing? Everyone worships you. How can you be socially anxious? But wait, if you're anxious about all this stuff, and I am too, does it really matter? And that changed everything for me. My name is Dr. Ali Matu, and I am a modern minority. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is a show about work and life told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Roman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. On today's show, we're talking to Dr. Ali Matu. Dr. Ali is a clinical psychologist specializing in social anxiety, but he's probably best known for his YouTube series, The Psych Show, a channel you've got to check out, where Dr. Ali breaks down and explains the importance of mental health for all of us in just a really fun, humorous, and accessible way. Dr. Ali is also clinical advisor at Loop, the only social-based mental health app designed for those who experience social anxiety and want to overcome it. Loop's actually really interesting because it provides the space and support folks need to learn new skills and build up the reflexes to tackle our most anxiety-inducing moments. Uh, We've kind of all been there in some form or fashion. You can learn more and download the app at loop.co. What I really love is between the YouTube series, the mental health app, it expands Dr. Ali's mission to make mental health more accessible to all of us. We actually first met Dr. Ali through friend of the pod, Jay Veraldi, fellow podcaster over at Animalia, as both of them have actually been working on Loop for some time now. Stick around for later in the pod where we'll learn a little bit more about Loop from Jay. But beyond Loop and the psych show on YouTube, which you have to check out, Dr. Ali is super passionate about talking about how we can unravel social anxiety disorders as well as many other things. He's created hundreds of videos. He's been on HBO, PBS, BuzzFeed, Netflix, etc., etc. He is in a lot of places, and people really respect where he's coming from and his unique take on things. And even John Oliver decided not to make fun of him. Sharon, what'd you think of our friend, Dr. Ali? I felt like I was sitting on a couch and talking to him was very, very relatable and hearing his stories about his own challenges with his own social anxiety when he was growing up and what inspired him to create this platform for everybody so that not just social anxieties, but all phobias and any other types of mental health issues or challenges that folks are experiencing can now be widely accessible and very talked about much more 
acceptable as well. I was quite inspired by him and I just really enjoyed our conversation. Yeah. So we'll get out of the way and jump right in to nerd out with our new good friend, Dr. Ali. Dr. Ali, it's so great to finally have you on the pod. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. I've been excited about this all week. So there's this thing called the YouTubes that all the kids are talking about, and uh, (laughs) you're kind of infamous on there, and on HBO, and on PBS, and in a bunch of other places. But I guess what we want to know is, uh, dude, where are you from? (laughs) I am born and raised in California, Northern California to be specific. And then you probably get a follow-up question like, well, where are you really from, Dr. Ali? <laughs> when people ask me this, I'll be like San Jose, California. That's, <laughs> that's like always my like two-step response because I, I just love seeing the neurons in their brain like malfunction. Like right, does not right. compute, does not compute. But my, my family is originally from Pakistan and specifically my mom's side is from the very north part of Pakistan, like Kashmir, what's, mm-hmm. what's modern day mm-hmm. Kashmir. And my yep. my dad dad's side of family is from the Punjab area, Lahore, like right. Oh yeah, my dad was born there. Right. Oh yeah, there. there you go. There but you I'm go. Indian, so Sharon's well, like rolling her eyes on all the partition talk that we partition would be the next yeah. conversation, which is a huge <laughs> bummer. It's also why my family, my mom's side of family, flee uh, or flew, flew, fled, fled, fled. fled. Yeah. That's a past tense. <laughs> they left Kashmir like right around partition. Yeah, so you know, parti- you can't escape. You talk to people from South Asia, and you eventually start talking about partition yeah yeah but full stop dude most people who are not south asian when you say about partition they're like like partitioning a hard drive (laughs) right right it's not a known thing because our people have repressed it and don't want our parents don't want to talk about it man no it wasn't until i was i mean i i I always grew up with like beta indians are bad people (laughs) and it is a tragedy that we lost east pakistan (laughs) to begled like i grew up with these man that wasn't even like 47, oh, yeah. not 70. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no. But the actual story of how it impacted my family, that is not something I've gotten until like my 20s or my 30s. Which you're totally still in. We're all in our Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You're no, still I, 20. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm in my 30s. It's not like I'm like like elder now. No. Um, <laughs> you're, you're old uh, as an Asian when little Asian kids call you uncle or auntie. Oh, oh it's brutal. Yeah, no. I'm I'm Mamu Ali to a few kids and it's it just, no, I know other Mamus. I can't be. Am I? Oh, yeah. No, I am trimming my ear hair now. I am oh, at no. that point. <laughs> I, I have become the uncle. Yeah. No, but it's it's not something that, like, the way in which that event, how it happened, why it happened, how it impacted families, like, I think it is something that a lot of people outside of South Asia don't really know and understand. And I always find it, I mean, you said around your 20s or 30s, you became really aware of that. What happened then to make you suddenly aware of that? His parents made him watch Gandhi for the fifth. Is that what happened? (laughs) (laughs) The media got involved? I didn't know Ben Kingsley was half Indian until like recently. I was like, oh, oh some British guy played comedy. Oh my gosh. The the history of non-Indian Pakistani Bengali people playing Indian Pakistani Bengali people. There's there's so many of that. What happened there? Well, in undergrad, I minored in Asian American studies. Mm. And that was really, really cool for me because I started to learn about the history of Asian Americans and all of these ways in which Supreme Court decisions, laws passed by Congress, like immigration waves, like what was driving this, the relationship between my family's ability to immigrate to the United States and how that was tied to Civil Rights Act and 
yeah. all of these kind of things. Like that's where a lot of those pieces started to connect. And that's where I wanted to go back and understand, okay, where, where does my family's history connect with this like larger tapestry of history mm -hmm. that I'm beginning to understand? And why did I start taking those classes? I think that ties into the childhood stuff and always feeling like I'm different and unusual. And I wanted to be with people who had a shared experience as I did and yeah. to feel less different and less. What made you want to take the class? Because we talked to a lot of guests who say, I, I took an Asian American or I took an African American or I took a women's studies. I said, I didn't. And I almost kind of wish admissions were like, hey, you're Indian. You should take the Asian American <laughs> studies class. Even though like I totally, that would have been racist, I guess. But like it would have done me some good. Maybe I wouldn't be doing this podcast if I just taken the class. <laughs> What, what well, made you want to take the class, I guess? I, I guess my best friends go growing up, most of them were Asian. One of my closest friends is white, but he was the minority in our group growing up. Yeah, in California. Uh, that makes sense. In California. Yeah. So I grew up in Northern California and I went to a pretty diverse high school. It's much less diverse now because Silicon Valley's destroyed the that place <laughs> in many ways, economically destroyed it. But it was pretty diverse growing up and most of my friends were Asian American and my now wife, then girlfriend was a Vietnamese American. Mm -hmm. And these topics and ideas and conversations were just always a part of my life growing up with my friends and to some degree with my family, but definitely with my friends. And for me, the more Asian American studies types of courses, it was a way of exploring all of those ideas in a different way. I think that's really where it came from. It was pretty obvious to my then girlfriend, now wife. I'm just going to call her out. Her name's Nguyen. So Nguyen and I, like through a lot of our conversations, uh, it was pretty obvious that like these major events had shaped our lives. And if there if there wasn't, wait, did something happen in Vietnam? Sorry, I'm not... <laughs> yeah, I know. There's this. There's this. <laughs> yeah, what, what happened there? <laughs> this is really my Asian American studies class. Right, this right. is why he needs that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the war and her family's multiple attempts at escaping. Her dad fought against the communists. All of these things was he was held in a North Vietnamese re-education camp. Like he went through all that stuff and they were able to escape and they were able to be refugees and be here in America. Whereas my dad was able to immigrate here in the big brain drain of, yeah. the, of, the, of 70s. the 70s. Yeah. yeah. And so like we would have these conversations about like, well, we both kind of came here, but we came under very different circumstances. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that completely influenced our experience, our family's experience here. But then also it experienced like our relationship with America and our relationship with Pakistan versus Vietnam. So like we just talked about this stuff a lot. And the Asian American studies courses just felt like an extension of mm -hmm. that. I mm -hmm. mean, I should also say like, like, I mean, there's so much stuff to unpack here. Like I, I wasn't a good student. I also <laughs> discovered psychology and psychology yeah. was the primary way that I became someone who loved learning. And that was all about understanding myself mm -hmm. and understanding these big questions I had. And all the Asian American studies courses I took just felt like an extension of that. Like, okay, here's the context that you need to know for why this stuff has happened and why you're experiencing this. Yeah, I was a psychology major too. And oh I, my gosh. I remember just learning so much, like there's so much self-reflection 
that happens, mm-hmm. especially as you're taking Psych 101 of like, this is why I respond to a, an event or um, a, situa- a situation in my life like that. Or, oh, my mom always told me X, Y, Z about something else. So I can relate to that, to just being in that phase of soaking it all in academically, but then applying it to personal development at the same time. That's where I feel like, Sharon, that kind of stuff needs to be a part of K through 12. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. And, and, and same with our history. Like, I do not know what K through 12 education is like now. Although it seems pretty scary based on like, <laughs> if you just watch the it, news. It, it, yeah. it, dep- well, it depends what state you live in. And that's a very, I say this as a kid who grew up in Alabama thinking Robert E. Lee Day, MLK Day was a thing, right? Wow. Or, yeah. Or I mean, everything yeah. going on around CRT, the non-issue issue that it has become. And yeah. we actually, we just had on the pod, Illinois State Representative Jennifer Gong Gershwitz, who passed the nation's first law about Asian education in K through 12. Mm. Like, and that's nuts. In 2020, in a state we have to pass that? That's not like an accepted thing. Right, right. And I really wonder how much my childhood would be different if I would read books in English literature where Mm. I saw myself in some way. I hated English class because I just could never relate to like Pride and Prejudice or Wuthering Heights or any of this stuff. I mean, the only book I ever read in my K through 12 education that I read, there's two, Flowers for Algeron, which was about, it's like a sci-fi book about like, can you increase someone's intelligence and then what happens as a result? I love that book. And then there's one other one of Mice and Men. I, yeah. I think I liked it because it was really so short. You like <laughs> books about mice. I got it. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Whoa. Whoa. I never, I never made that connection. Yeah. I also, I had to take care of a mouse in uh, a psychology class and I named it Pavi. I, I, I heard you mouse. had to take care of cockroaches for your job. I did. <laughs> really? I did. We'll, we'll, we'll dive into that. People are going to think like, who's this creepy guy? Who's this awesome guy? Come on. <laughs> but like my English classes were full of books that just like, I just didn't connect with them. I wasn't really aware enough to be like, I don't see my res- myself reflected in any of the stories. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I was very much like, this seems so boring and has no relevance to my life. I did see that. And in history, the same thing is so much of, especially in, in elementary school, so much of it seemed like a European settler Absolutely. mythology. Yep. And I would read this stuff and I'm like, there's nothing in here about my family. There's nothing. But but I think some of it's also how many at-bats you get. Because I remember one of the books I, I distinctly remember, and it scared me. I read Native Son. Um, and mm. It's about the Black experience. There's I think there's a little bit of um, socialism in there. But if you only read one book about the culture, like it's not that yeah. all English literature stories are bad, but you have to read 10 of them to find the two that you like, right? And so if right. you only get to read one Asian book or one Black person in in the 60s book and it just doesn't hit for whatever reason we all have different tastes and so i think that's why you need like a breadth you need to be able to read more like even like i've only seen five maybe ten bollywood movies and they're um all bad but <laughs> but i wonder have i seen more maybe i haven't seen the right indian movies maybe i haven't listened to the right boy band like i, I do think it's a numbers game and when the numbers totally. are stacked against one thing you are gonna think the greats are yeah. totally yeah. Uh, the uk i mean this is why i really like clinged on to all the the brown people I saw, which was not many. I loved, I loved uh, Short Circuit, which I thought <laughs> featured <laughs> a Indian actor. 
And it wasn't until Aziz Ansari's show did a scene about that, about yeah. how that's that a guy actually, in brown face. It's a guy in brown face, which like destroyed, destroyed my view oh. of so much stuff. And I shared that with my dad. Like this is just a few years ago. And my dad was like, huh? And he was kind of quiet and he was thinking of what to say. And then my dad's like, well, I mean, he must have done a good job because we believed him in that role. I'm like, no, dad, that's not the point. <laughs> that's not the point of this revelation. But there was that dude. There was Apu, which I had a very complicated yeah. relationship with yeah. which we can unpack have you seen harry Kondo Blue has a documentary yes. about it yeah 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 Yeah, it's wonderful I, I i especially love how he got a lot of south asian comedians together to give their take but mm-hmm. also their take on like doing the accent like yeah that, it's a requirement that, even as a kid like it's oh yeah it, you get your white friends to laugh when you do the accent i feel guilty for having done that so you so know long. what i feel guilty for yeah oh my gosh somehow it got out that i can do the accent i can do the Apu accent, which is not even an Indian accent. It's like this Mm -hmm. caricature. It's this fake thing. (laughs) But I could do it and I could do it well. And word got out and somehow word got out to the principal of my elementary school. And then he invited me to do the morning announcement for the entire school as Apu. And I did it. And I did it. And I was so I was so happy that uh, like I was getting this positive attention. I was going to say, because that's your Pakistani and you're slamming Indian people, but sure. <laughs> that was it. That was it too. It was ulterior that was motive. Yeah. That's like the weird, the weird internalized the thing uh, that our grandparents told us. <laughs> yes. Yes. Where I was like, oh, they're not laughing at me for being South Asian, for being Pakistani. They're laughing at Indians for being Indian. Well, are, you being, are you being half serious or not? Oh, I'm being totally serious. This oh, is how shit, third, really? This wow. is how third grade Ali understood this. Which, like, now as an adult, you think about, like, race and so much of race is about how other people see you and how other people treat you. Like, part of it is very much about there is ethnic identity and there's how you relate and your experience. But this is kind of one of the big things I I understood from watching what happened to Barack Obama. It didn't matter at all what he wrote about dreams from my father. Mm -hmm, Like, mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. many people saw him and saw a black man. Like, Mm -hmm. they did not see the complexity of what his identity is or how he identifies himself. And so like third grade, Ali had no idea that people were kind of laughing at me. I thought they were laughing at Indians, which mm. was not me. Hmm. Well, no. so we're unpacking something that I know is near and dear to your heart and it's social anxiety. And yeah, I mean, my awareness of the term was like, oh, that explains seven to 27. <laughs> like, <you know. laughs> <laughs> I, it, I, I guess, unlike a lot of psychology majors, you doubled down. You went into the field. You have a lot of stuff from your past that made you want to go into the field and work on it and narrow in on mental health stigmas. And as a practicing psychologist, as a YouTuber, you're in the mental health space, mental health tech space. Like, walk us through the journey of why you needed to solve this problem. Is it because the principal made you make fun of Indian people? <laughs> <laughs> it's... It, it... <sighs> So it's it's a lot of different things. And if we go way back, like, so my family, my dad immigrated here in the 70s. Mm-hmm. He worked like two, three jobs, went to night school, did all this sort of stuff, right? And he was eventually able to get visa status for my mom and my brother mm-hmm. to immigrate over. And they immigrated over in 1982. I was born in 1983. Mm-hmm. And so my childhood in the 80s was very much this immigrant kid growing up and... I didn't go to daycare. I didn't go to preschool. I didn't do any of that kind of stuff. Like my mom, oh my gosh, my mom, 
my mom thought I was going to be a girl when she was pregnant with me. Mm-hmm. And she used to call me in, in Urdu, she used to call me my princess. Aww. And then I was born and I was not a girl. <laughs> But she kept calling me my princess. So she, and I didn't realize what Mina Rani is what she called me. And I didn't realize what that meant till I was like 20 years old. I thought it just was like a sweet term of like, oh, my child. <laughs> like so for, or something. Right, right. For like 20 years, my mom was calling me my little princess. And I, had, I did not realize. But that's kind of how she treated me. And she was like very protective of me. And I didn't really spend a whole ton of time around other people until I had to go to kindergarten. And when I did go to kindergarten, I did not speak. I literally did not speak. They thought I didn't know how to speak English. And so they put me in ESL. Mm. And I didn't correct them because I was too terrified to say anything. So I was in ESL for like four months. And then they finally realized I can speak English. Because one of the ESL teachers was making fun of one of the kids and was saying, gosh, that kid still can't figure out his left from his right hand. Like, how many times do I need to explain this to you? And I looked at the kid. I looked at the teacher. I looked at his hands. I looked at my hands. And they're like, oh, no. (laughs) I only understood what I just said. And then I was out of ESL. (laughs) And they just didn't really put the context together that this might be anxiety. They, They saw this brown kid. At the time, I lived in... Saratoga, California, which now is very like heavily Asian American and white, but at the time was much more white than it was Asian American. And so uh, I think seeing a brown kid, they thought like, oh, this kid can't speak English. And there was no context for anxiety, but it was anxiety. It's I definitely had a condition which I didn't have the words to describe until I was pursuing my PhD, which is not the way like people yeah. need to understand like, oh, that was anxiety. Like you shouldn't have to pursue a doctor. Well, it's it's kind of like what you said earlier. If they just taught us this stuff. So if everyone just got a PhD in psychology, we'd all be OK. <laughs> yeah, we'd have a much more loving and compassionate world, I think. <laughs> Very kind and compassionate. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. There would be like, no bridges or internet or anything, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we would hold hands and hug each other and we sing Kubaya. Like the condition I had was selective mutism. In certain situations, oh, wow. I did not talk. Like mm-hmm. it, it sounds like a X-Men superpower, but it's not. It's... It's just all it means is like in certain situations, you're mute. You don't talk. Yeah. And that's what I had. And part of it is because I've got anxiety loaded, uh, especially on my mom's side. There's there's a lot of anxiety. Again, that's not something I understood until much later in life. So part of it is I was genetically loaded for it. Part of it is I didn't spend much time around other kids before kindergarten. And then part of it is definitely the experience of feeling like I am different. And, and social anxiety is this fear of evaluation from other people. But usually you are afraid people think you're ugly, strange, stupid, dumb, weird, unlovable, one of those things. And the core childhood experience I had was this fear that people think I am strange and different. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And a big part of that was like being the only brown kid in the class. Yeah, it's funny. You talk about genetically loaded. Another doctor friend of mine explained it, nature versus nurture. And it's like nature loads the gun, nurture and environment pulls the trigger. Yes, Mm -hmm. yes. For, For better and worse. 
Yeah. Yeah. And and in this case, and and you could make the argument that many of us are to to varying degrees of amounts of gunpowder to play the metaphor. We're all kind of loaded and coded. It's just the does the situation. uh, Is that fair? I mean, I I think that's absolutely fair. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, That's absolutely fair. And we just just, some of us might not might have a hate to say a loving household or like we have. And I know for a fact we're surrounded in privilege and there are things that could trigger those things. And as you get older, you learn maybe you learn enough about yourself. Maybe you get a PhD in psychology. I don't know. But like, <laughs> no, but you, you learn enough about yourself. You're like, oh, okay, these are the situations that do, I hate to say trigger, but it's like, I know what situations to avoid. Where are the situations I get in trouble with, with my own anxieties and how to avoid those. But if you yeah. don't know that and you get thrust into the situation or God forbid how so many people live in this society of ours where there are the anxieties and stresses of our world. I, yeah. I well, yeah. and it's also about learning how to cope. So I didn't really know how to make friends. Like for me, it was so overwhelming to be around other people. I thought people were constantly judging me. I was having experiences that were also to some degree backing that up. Like two things that really, well, I guess the two things are actually connected. But there was this one day I remember in first grade where it was uh, the first day back from winter vacation. And the teacher, like this would never happen now. At least I really hope it it wouldn't, but maybe it would. Who knows? But the teacher had everyone sit in the circle and share what they got for Christmas. And I was this Muslim kid who doesn't observe Christmas. And in my memory, it was me and like all the Jewish kids like looking at each other with like terror. <laughs> like, <laughs> what the hell are we going to say? And so um, like I obviously didn't get anything for Christmas because we didn't observe Christmas. We didn't yeah. celebrate it. And when it got to me, I just I, I kind of froze for a while because again, mm-hmm. selective mutism. Mm-hmm. And then the teacher was like, Ali, what? What? Ali? And then I eventually said a rabbit. I got a rabbit for Christmas, <laughs> which wow. like everyone was like, what? You got a, a rabbit? And I was like, yeah. Uh, the only image that popped in my head was Bugs So I kind of went with that. And then I remember walking home that day. My school was like right around the corner from my home. Like I could, it was like a less than a minute walk. And I remember going home that day and like locking myself in the bathroom because that's the only place you have any privacy as a kid. Right. And I remember looking at the mirror and being so angry and ashamed that like I was the one brown kid. Like I I remember looking at myself and being like, why did I have to have brown skin? Like, why Mm -hmm. do I have to be different? Mm And so like those kind of experiences were also further escalating my social anxiety. And, and by the time I got to middle school, it, it very much morphed more into social anxiety and, and some depression as well about who I am and thinking that like no girl is ever going to like me and I'm not good at making friends and I'm into all this weird stuff that I'm into like superheroes and Star Trek and Star Wars it stuff wasn't that cool. is not it wasn't pop, cool. Yeah. Which was not cool yeah. yeah i mean yeah this other experience i remember we're talking about like regrets here like the other experience i really regret in middle school there was these these group of like three people who like once a month they would always dress up in like star trek outfits or like other sci-fi things and i thought they were so cool i thought they were like the coolest people in the world and i so desperately wanted to be their friends but i was too anxious to approach them and be like hey i like star trek too and then one day one of them was being bullied this other dude grabbed their backpack like while they were wearing it slammed them into lockers took off the backpack and threw it at them and then said this like very homophobic slur at them and I saw it all happen and I did nothing I just stood there and watched Mm -hmm. it all unfold because and I felt like that 
kid in kindergarten again, just like frozen, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like I couldn't do anything. So it's like these kind of experiences like backed up a lot of what I was wired for, which was anxiety. And that's kind of what my MO was until I really got into high school. Was high what school may- a little more diverse or was it all the same, but you just had a better sense of who you were? Yeah, I moved. My family moved when I was in third grade okay. and we moved to an area that was, it sounds like I say that as if like, oh, it was this massive move. We moved to like the next town over. So we moved from like. (laughs) But as a kid, that's a big deal. Yeah, that is a big deal because it's a new school, it's new friends, right? It's a bunch of things. Yeah. And we didn't have text messages or Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm, AIM mm -hmm. or like email. It was like 1992 or something like that. It would have been a long distance phone call. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 totally. Like, what's the area yeah. code? So I moved over to San Jose, and the school I went to was more diverse. It also was the school where the principal had me read the morning announcements in, as a poo. But I, it was it was much more diverse. And eventually, I developed a much more diverse group of friends. My best friend growing up was was an Indian kid who lived down the street. And our parents felt so comfortable with us hanging out with each other that they would let us kind of do whatever. They would yeah. let us ride bikes together, go to each I, other's houses. You're like talking about my childhood. The other the other brown <laughs> kid, right? Like they must be okay. They're one of the good ones. Do whatever. Right. right. We trust them. Yeah. Yeah. His parents were, would always yell at him and be like, Ali speaks Urdu. Why don't you learn from him? <laughs> oh. Yeah. Oh my God. I, I, I feel like you are like, reciting my childhood by the way this entire conversation is like oh wow yeah okay i wasn't the only one got it (laughs) so yeah my friends from there on were more diverse and the thing that changed in high school it sounds so stupid but i enrolled in a public speaking class in Mm. freshman year of high school accidentally and i say that because what i thought i was signing up for is not what i got like what i thought i was signing up for is a class where we just studied famous speeches i had no idea it was a class where you were going to give speeches to each right. other and when i found that out i was terrified like i remember miss georgiana hayes my teacher saying in the first day of class like welcome to public speaking where you're going to overcome your fear of public speaking and i was terrified frozen again (laughs) like that kid in kindergarten but to drop that class which i tried to do i had to talk to the teacher and get her written permission to drop which terrified me too so i just avoided it which is like if you have anxiety that's usually where you go is just avoidance land like mm-hmm. i'm not gonna do it and somehow magically things are gonna work out which is what i thought in my head but that teacher miss hayes and that class it taught me so much like we started giving short speeches in very small groups like one-on-one with another person and then one in a small group like one to like three people and then we would like debrief afterwards. And the thing I learned was that that fear that I had of being seen as like, dumb, strange, weird, ugly, everyone else in the class had that including some like super popular kids who I was like, how can you possibly believe this thing? Everyone like worships you? Like, how can you be socially anxious? But wait, if you're anxious about all this stuff, and I am too about this exact same stuff, does it really like matter? Like if everyone 
thinks they're weird and strange. And every time people have the spotlight, everyone is so worried about how they are coming across. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. does any of that matter? And and that changed everything for me. Like, I felt so liberated thinking now that the fear I have is something that everyone shares to some degree. Yeah. And it's more about like volume, like how intense are those fears or or not. And after that, that completely changed my life, like 100%. I joined the speech and debate team. I joined the rally board. I I emceed all these rallies. I joined the wrestling team. Fun fact, that guy who bullied those other kids, he was on the football team. And one day he joined a wrestling practice just to kind of see what wrestling's like. And he got paired up with me. Oh, Oh, no. no. (laughs) And uh, he didn't remember me, but I remembered him. Yeah. And he was so dumb. Um, he was just he was just approaching wrestling the way he approaches football, which is like charge into yeah. this linebacker mm-hmm. kind of situation. Right. Oh, I like totally beat the crap out of him in terms <laughs> of wrestling. Yeah, like yeah, I didn't yeah. punch him and stuff. Yeah. yeah. But he, he was like no match for me. That was probably one of the proudest days of my K through twelve career. <laughs> I, I I like how you were you were about to say of your entire life and then you qualified it. Ali, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I would venture to say it might be of the entire life. Birth of your kids, marrying your best friend. Maybe maybe top, top three. Top three. I wouldn't say number one, but probably top three. Yeah, I can't get away with one or two, but let let's go top three. Total. Totally. Orphan kids, of course, at the front, but Yes. YouTube career, startup, exactly. saving people's exactly. lives. Right. No. But like pin, pinning down the bully on the wrestling mat. That is like my dream, yes. dude. That is my oh, dream. It's like the moment in in like a teen movie that like where Definitely. everyone would get up and cheer, you know? Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, yeah. No, it was slow clapping, was slow clapping, slow clapping. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was like totally pissing in my pants beforehand, though. I was like, I can't. I'm so terrified. He's going to he's going to beat me up. No. But then I was like, he's so stupid. He doesn't know what he's doing. So I want to fast forward into the way you approach the work. So obviously, you've eventually found your way. You found the field. You began practicing the field. You did a lot of good for the world in the field. But there's this moment where you talk about that moment where you're like, well, 10 or 20 people or more, because you obviously have a very storytelling kind of dynamic and an entertaining kind of way of communicating. Can, can you talk about the transition to becoming a creator, not just a, a, a clinical psychologist? Yeah, yeah. So kind of similar. I, I feel like I've stumbled into cool things a lot in my life. And I really have to thank the people who I love and love me for supporting me about that. Like my, my parents, while my dad was initially reluctant, to support me going into a PhD in psychology. He said, Beta, do you know what PhD stands for? And I'm like, I'm (laughs) I'm pretty sure I'm not going to like what you have to say. And he said, PhD means poor hungry doctor. (laughs) What MD stands for? And I was like, medical doctor? He's like, money doctor, Beta. (laughs) It stands for money doctor. Are you sure you want to be the poor hungry doctor? But he came around and my mom was always supportive, but my wife has always been super supportive of me trying and doing different things. Can I defend your dad for a second? Please, please. Because I get it because my dad, man, he didn't have that one. And I I didn't, (laughs) I went, I went engineering to business school to whatever the hell it is I'm doing now. And it took, I was in my late twenties and my dad told me I was pushing so hard because it's all I knew. Like in India, it was 
MD, engineer, architect. In that or like that, why'd you become an architect? Do you love art? No, because I didn't become a doctor or an engineer. And so it's like, <laughs> I I feel I didn't get it then, right? That MD, PhD moment that you had with your dad that I think I had a similar thing. And it's like the best he could do. It's the best that he knew. He, he didn't know how to, he didn't, he still doesn't understand what I'm doing right now, nor do I. But my dad said something to my, in, my, in my late 20s. He's like, wow, I, I didn't know you could be successful at this. He, yeah. It's kind of the best that they knew, given their path. I, I really, I've been thinking a lot more about that as like a young father. So anyway, but props to your dad still. And that was fucking hilarious. So to be clear. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, tell, tell me about your wife and, and the other people that love you. <laughs> no, it's it reminds me of this great graphic memoir. I think it's called like The Best. The, the best, best We Could we, Do by T. Boy. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's, Fun yeah. fact, I had... Sharon, come on my other comic book podcast. That was the first episode on that one, Sharon. I That's think. That's right. Yeah. And basically, I read it. I read yeah, that book. Sharon, Ryan, and I just had a good cry for an hour reading that that it's comic. Such a good book, it really is. <laughs> it's a good cry. Is kind of like how if someone asked me for a quote about that book, I think that would be it. Yeah, it's a good cry. Well, it's, I think uh, the quote on the front of the book by some other famous person is like, "This book will break your heart and put it back together." Yes, yes, mm-hmm. that is the yeah. And I saw that. I'm like. <gasps> Of, uh, this is going to be intense. But I, I, come on our show, please. Yes. <laughs> so we can all cry. Yes. I plus one that. So what are we talking about? Uh, uh, how much your wife loves you. <laughs> oh, yeah. So when we were dating in college, she very much supported me going into psychology. She was the first one who dropped that idea in my head. And she's like, Ali, these are classes that you do so well at. And I can't get you to shut up talking about them. <laughs> but like, that's a sign that you should do something with this. And my response was like, what can I possibly do with psychology? And she's like, why don't you find out and talk to some professors? And that's what I did. And uh, like you were saying, like, flash forward, I became a psychologist. But I didn't become a psychologist because I wanted to practice and treat mental illness and, and all of those kind of things. Although like, that did make it more palpable for my parents. They understood what a doctor does so this was more like a doctor of the mind and like oh you could work in hospitals and do that kind of stuff like all of that kind of made sense for them but I went into it because I really this is kind of gets back to Sharon what you were talking about about how personal psychology can feel when you're studying Mm -hmm. it I got into it because I felt like this is stuff that everyone needs to know and I thought my path to fulfilling that mission of giving psychology away to everyone was going to be teaching. And I thought the best way to do that is to get a PhD so I can teach wherever I want. And at the time, I was going to college in the early 2000s. And I had a few professors who told me, oh, Ali, there's going to be this massive wave of retirements. There's going to be so many faculty positions that open up. You're going to be able to teach wherever you want. Don't worry about it. Well, then 2008 came. A lot of those faculty saw their retirements completely evaporate or they got spooked. And then the other thing that's happened is as people were retiring, universities weren't hiring full professors. They were hiring adjuncts who they wouldn't pay salary. They wouldn't give them benefits. So the whole market around that has changed. So uh, flash forward to 2014, I'm at Columbia University. I'm an assistant professor there, but my primary role is in the medical center where I'm um, treating anxiety disorders. I'm treating a lot of social anxiety. I feel pretty good about that. I feel like my life has come full circle. I'm helping other kids to overcome the anxiety I had as a kid, but I'm also becoming very frustrated 
by all of them because there's a cap to how many people I can see. I'm getting more pressure from the medical center, from the university to see more people so I can generate more revenue for the medical center. I'm beginning to feel burnt out and I'm frustrated that the only people I'm able to help are those who have good insurance, who have money, who are able to overcome the stigma of mental illness, who are able to navigate our horrendous healthcare system. And like, then I can only help like 20 to 30 people in a week. Mm -hmm. Like, and I was doing teaching, but there's so many limits to people being able to access my teaching. Like I'm only teaching the people who are aware and interested in psychology. And so one day what happened is I, I had like a 14, 15 year old patient come in who I was helping for, I think for like depression. And she's like, Dr. Ali, I want to share this video with you. Is this video like super helped me? And she pulled up this YouTube video and I watched it and I was like, oh my God, that's complete crap. Like it's a good video. It was this other teenage girl talking about how she overcame depression. It was well-made. It was good storytelling. It was only about three minutes long, but it was also full of information that I didn't really think was the most healthy information or accurate. And so I went home that night, complained to my wife, and then she's like, well, why don't you just make a YouTube video? And I was like, you, no one can just make a YouTube video. You have to like <laughs> know what you're doing. And she's like, this is what it's called. YouTube. Yeah. You put stuff there and then people watch it. I was like, oh. So that's how my YouTube channel. I like your wife. I don't know her. I like her too. I, I really yeah. like her a lot. I want to yeah. get her on this show. Oh. I want to talk to her. Yeah. She, she does not take any crap and she's like. You want to complain about it? Then do something about it. Right. You know? Totally. Yeah. 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 She's, tiger mom. She's got that in her. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. She's a, she's a tiger wife. Can that be? She's always, <laughs> be always pushing me. Always pushing me to be better. And so every good idea I think I've ever had has really come from her and, and her encouragement. Think about so, it the other way. She has the, you're executing on the ideas. You're, you're, you work for her, basically, it sounds like. Oh, she's a producer. Oh, she's 100% the executive producer of my life. <laughs> 100%. So, like, that's how it was born. And it's probably been one of the coolest things that's happened in my life because it's given me so many opportunities to both scale up what I was doing in individual practice yeah, and reach people I would never be able to reach before. And also it's led to a lot of cool opportunities. So when my wife got a job opportunity here in California and we had a two-year-old daughter at the time who's now four years old, we took that job opportunity to come back to California. We were both on the East Coast for a long time. We came back, and when I was going through that move, I really wanted to reboot my career. And I was exploring a lot of different options, and the media that I was creating is kind of what led me to join the startup. And we are now trying to do the exact same thing that I've been doing on YouTube, which is like scale up the way that we can help people do something that's very different than mental health care as usual. Because I know who can access it and I know who can't access it. And I want to do more to help the people who can't quite get to traditional mental health care. That's great. 
And now, a word from our sponsor. Today we're talking with friend of the pod, Jay Baraldi, who you've heard talking about his work in the climate space, but when he's not trying to save the planet, Jay's working alongside clinical psychologist Dr. Ali Matu to help people with their mental health at Loop, the only group-based mental health app that's been carefully designed for folks who experience social anxiety and want to overcome it. Jay, it's great to have you back. What up, bud? Always happy to be here and glad I could connect you with Ali. Yeah, so far it's been a really great chat with him. But Jay, I want you to tell us a little bit more about what is Loop and tell us about the work that you and Dr. Ali are actually doing with this app. Well, Raman, as you already know, people are finally starting to pay attention to mental health. And with Loop, we're wanting to specifically address social anxiety, which is a massively growing issue out there that has few dedicated solutions. Yeah, it really does seem like social anxiety is becoming a bigger and bigger issue that folks are finally starting to pay attention to. Why do you actually think that is? Well, personally speaking, and I'm not here with evidence to support this, but I think it's because we're spending more and more time in these sort of isolated consumption and reaction chambers, especially to social media and not enough time truly interacting and learning how to build healthy relationships with others. I am sure no one listening to this podcast has any idea what you were talking about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like it's sad, but true. And we all know it, but social anxiety is also tied to many other macro trends around increased anxiety overall in the world, a heightened state of tribalism, and just many other things out there that are driving this issue. Yeah, it feels like everything out there is only making lots of the underlying things even worse. I mean, I think so many of us are feeling more and more on edge with ourselves and even our family and friends, despite our best efforts. Everything just feels I don't know, dialed up to 11. Yeah, you're not alone, man. In fact, this is why we decided to put some of the mental health work Dr. Ali, myself, and the entire Loop team are passionate about into the app that's more accessible to everybody. That's really great. Meeting people where they are. So how does the Loop app work? So we're hyper-focused on teaching our Loopers practical skills they can use in real life. So for example, speaking up in meetings or starting conversations. And we use a combination of evidence-based training, controlled social exposure, and peer support. Uh, what exactly do you mean by controlled social exposure? So with Loop, we have these highly trained guides that run different activities, games, and simulations. So you learn the basics of the scale with our content, and then you can jump into our live experiences to practice them. So for example, with our being in the spotlight skill, we have live improv games you do with our guides and with our bloopers. And then you can join our regular live support experiences to connect with others working on the same skills and talk about how you're applying them in your real life. But wouldn't joining these kind of live experiences be sort of scary for someone dealing with social anxiety? Yeah, that's a great question. So with Loop, we make it easy by giving you the option of joining as a participant or as a listener. And if you're a listener, nobody needs to know you're there and you can pop in and out anytime you want. And if you do want to participate, it's audio only, there's no video, and you can speak up as much or as little as you want. That sounds pretty dope. Uh, so is Loop expensive? Now, we're big on making Loop affordable. So it's just $15 per week, and you can join as many sessions as you want. So right now, listeners of this pod can get a free two-week trial. Basically, an entire month on Loop costs about half as much as one hour of therapy. So would you say Loop is kind of like a replacement for therapy? Absolutely not. Loop is a great complement to therapy or a great tool to use if you're not working with a therapist. We believe in therapy in a big way, and many of our loopers are actually in therapy as well. But we all know there's no silver bullet in mental health. We all need a toolbox with many tools in it. And if you have social anxiety and that's something you experience, Loop is absolutely a great tool to have in that box. This sounds really cool, man. So how do people actually find Loop? Just go to loop.co to learn more and get the loop app. Or you can go to the app store and search loop for social anxiety. 
for now, Loop is only available on iPhones, but Android is coming soon. Jay, this is some really rad and powerful stuff that you and Dr. Lee and the entire Loop team are working on. I love that you're meeting people where they are to solve a real problem that so many of us are facing. So please, please do keep up the great work. Thanks, bud. Always a pleasure to be here. And thanks for the opportunity to share more about Loop. And now back to our show. How has this changed in the last year or so? Has something happened in the past year? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh. It's changed a lot. So right before I joined the startup, I was actually, my goal was to go full-time on YouTube. And my business plan was I was going to create YouTube videos, but most of my revenue was going to come from these workshops that I was going to do. Like Mm -hmm. leading up to that time, I started to do more and more workshops and more and more like partnerships and collaborations, like the thing I did with HBO and Mm -hmm. like what I ended up doing with with PBS too. So I wanted to support more of that work. And I spent December of 2019 through February of 2020, really hitting the pavement, getting a lot of workshops in place. And I remember my wife saying, in early March of 2020, she's like, I don't know how we're going to do this. You're traveling every week for like the next six months. This is going to be intense. And I said, I know it's going to be a lot, but if we can make this work, I think I can scale down on all the travel in like 2021, blah, blah, blah. Once the pandemic hit, California started to shut down. There was this one week where all of those workshops, all that stuff got canceled. All of mm-hmm. it. And that was around the time where I was talking to someone else about this mental health startup. And thank goodness those things aligned because that ended up being the path I could pursue moving forward. But I think everyone has some story of how like their plans completely like the plans of mice and men often go awry. All of our plans totally change in 2020. So to answer your question, a lot of the content I made in 2020 was more about COVID, about the traumatic impact of it, about trying to recalibrate our lives and deal with the mental health implications of all of the stuff. On our startup, we never wanted to make a an app that was completely with a remote team that's never met each other. Like our plan was always once a month, once every few months, we're going to get everyone together in person and work through stuff. But like one big change that happened there is we went through about almost a year and a half before most of us met each other in person. So it was learning how can we support each other and have a well-functioning team when we're all separated And it's also very much changed the way I experience anxiety myself. So the first few months of the pandemic, I became someone who really suffered from insomnia. Like I never had that as a problem my entire life. Always social anxiety, never any problems with sleeping, never. And that was so hard for me. It was so hard for me to get a decent night of sleep in those first few months like I, I lost childcare. My wife and I were working full time while also trying to be like somewhat parents. Like we felt more like babysitters and parents really. And we were bad parents. Like I would just have my daughter watch TV all day long. And there was these days where she was like, daddy, I'm tired of TV, yeah. which like, who says mm-hmm. that? I never said that as a kid. Mm -hmm. So it was, I would say my, my content changed, my work changed, my own mental health changed, everything changed. My values, I think in some ways completely changed too. Like a lot of stuff just uh, was turned upside down. It's refreshing. It sounds terrible. It's refreshing to hear that because 
even the psychologist who knows all this stuff like it was we are all affected by this right like yeah. no one is immune these are real things that we all have that we all face in different ways i guess after having taken us on this like really long and winding journey if you could have a word with that little boy who wasn't speaking up as much the teenager who was secretly into Star Trek. What would you tell that kid? <laughs> oh, man. Well, the first thing I would tell that kid is everything that you feel ashamed for loving and all those things that bring joy to your life that you're so terrified to share with other people, they're all going to be so cool. Just wait. Just wait a few years. There's, There's going to be, be so this... much that you won't even want to watch it anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You are going to live to see an era where Comic-Con is the hottest ticket in the world. The MCU is the most popular film franchise in the world. That There are like five different Star Trek shows in production. J.J. Abrams is going to like make this like massive like tentpole Star Trek movie that everyone with lens flares with with lens flares you will not believe you will be blinded <laughs> by the optimism of this movie. That's one thing I would tell that kid, and the other thing I would tell that kid is if you can find the courage to share your fears with other people, you will realize that you're not alone. The things you are so afraid of being judged for, these are the same fears that everyone around you also shares. Like, that's what I wish I so was able to do was share what's on my mind with other people. I, I didn't really do that, not, not until high school. And that would have been, I think, the single thing that would have helped me the most. And that's what I love about treating social anxiety. Like, the best way to treat social anxieties actually in a social context, hmm. like doing social people. I always say this and people are like, that sounds like a terrible idea, but group therapy for social anxiety is the best thing ever. Because not only is social anxiety a problem about interacting with other people, but it's a problem that's best treated when you're around other people as well. Mm, and where you have opportunities to practice and experience and learn and try something new and get feedback from other people. Yeah. Well, and what's interesting is the, the weirdness of the internet is we're alone together there. But when I was looking up your videos and, oh, this guy is talking about this thing and 100,000 people have watched it. So it must be okay for me to watch too. I'm right. not a weirdo for watching totally. it. And so there's this, yeah. there is this kind of group validation of, and I'm just straight, a straight up compliment. You make it fun. You make it accessible. Aww. And I think that's important because people have these barriers that is there something wrong with me? Am I? Yeah. And so I think that to what your mission was, it's like you're making it easy. You're making it accessible. You're removing the stigma. And that that's shit. That's like 90 percent. of the yeah. battle. That's not even half the battle. So kudos yeah. to you for that. Yeah, thank you. This is something that I never dreamed I would be able to do. Like, if we just go back 10 years, it's 2021 right now. If we go back to 2011, uh, it, people in my field were still debating, should psychologists be on Twitter? They would have these, like, forums and conferences where we would discuss, like, 
should we be like on these platforms talking about these different things? And there's an early generation of like mental health professionals that got on podcasts and started making YouTube content and started doing a lot of this kind of stuff that I'm doing now. And that changed. But the other thing that I think is is far more important that changed is a lot of young people and a lot of celebrities started talking about mental health online in different ways, whether it was through different communities that formed on the internet, whether it was through YouTube, whether it was through all these different means, it really destigmatized a lot of mental health. And it made it much more everyday and common and safe to talk about. And I know we still have a long way to go, but that is something that really liberated me as well. Because when I was in grad school, I never thought I would be able to talk about my own history with mental health. And that has completely changed in a very short amount of time. And so I feel very much a sense of responsibility to give away and share all the stuff that I've learned with other people. Because I, I do feel like a lot of what my career is becoming is trying to help and reach the kids who are just like me and didn't know this stuff and didn't have access to this stuff. But if they did, maybe their life could be just a little bit more comfortable and not so anxiety strong as, as mine yeah. was. Yeah, it's amazing. I think the format of it, and the the fact that people can access it right from their own living rooms, their bedrooms, on their phones. There's there's something about the fact that it is on YouTube that makes it even more accessible than just the way you're positioning it. So it's amazing. You've done an amazing job. Yeah, and, and thank you. And it's something that I feel a little bit like Lin-Manuel like I'm channeling a little Lin-Manuel here with like, I'll never be satisfied. Like, <laughs> I was about to say, are you going to break into rap, dude? Come on. <laughs> Immigrants, we get the job done. Right, um, right. <laughs> I, I, I know it's YouTube right now and also startup. The startup is Loop where we're trying to bring what I did in social anxiety group therapy and trying to bring it into an app where people are able to mm. work on and overcome their social anxiety with other people as well. Yeah. So these are the things I'm toying with right now. I don't know what it's going to be like in two years. Like, is it still going to be YouTube content? Is it still going right. to be an app? Is it going to be something else? I don't know. And that's the thing that with the kind of content I've been creating, if you're in this space, you always have to be experimenting because yeah. there's always people. Right. There's it's not all, about the tech. It's not about the technology. It's about, it's like, I'm not into podcasting. I'm into audio storytelling, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure that's something you all have experienced as well. Yeah is there is every now and then someone comes along that like really pushes things forward and you're like oh gosh well okay like we have to like up our game and and sometimes that means like the audio quality the editing sometimes it means the thumbnails and the art and all of that sort of stuff and sometimes it means the storytelling but that's something that is really fun exciting but also overwhelming and scary is like how do you constantly keep reinventing what you're doing to keep up with how this media is is changing not to yeah. diminish it but there's a form of anxiety in that <laughs> <laughs> i mean we haven't even talked about imposter syndrome right yeah. and right. like right. how that kind of connects with all of this too i've had a lot of that in my career like when the first time i did a tv gig cbs evening news kind of thing 
birthday. It was one of the first things I did. And my feeling the whole time is like, why did you ask me? Why didn't you find someone who's like, has more expertise? And why don't you go to that person and not little me? And it's taken me a long time to get to a point where I believe that my voice and my unique life experience, that is the expertise. Like, yeah, I've got my training. I've put in my years into the work I'm doing. But the reason people might reach out to me is because of the unique voice and life experience I have and the way I can share that with other people. That is the expertise. My differences are the expertise. And I struggled with that for a long time, thinking someone else who has more commas after their name or someone who has a longer resume or has written all these books, like they're the person who you should go to, not me. So that's like where the imposter syndrome stuff has really come into play is like, I am going to be exposed. People are going to realize I'm not supposed to be the one in this room. Yeah. Well, I think we all do feel that way. And you are definitely, you've got your PhD. You are not a what was that? A poor, hungry P- doctor? Pretty hungry. Pretty hungry. <laughs> poor, hungry doctor. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> You've lifted yourself out of that. So I think we've covered so much. Dr. Ali, are you ready now for speed round? Oh my gosh, let's do it. I All love right. speed rounds. Awesome. What is one thing about you that no one expects? I'm tall. No one expects that. <laughs> I'm really, I'm, I'm do pretty Do you think tall. you're really short? How tall are you? I'm six two, six three. And I'm actually the shortest male on my mom's side. Like wow. I, all wow. my male relatives on my mom's side are all taller than me. That like is very the, tall. Yeah, the tallest is, I think he's 6'7", is the tallest person on, on my mom's side. What's a book or a movie that has characters that you relate to? Oh, there's so many I could name. I'm going to name one that is still in the sci-fi genre that I love. Yes. Um, Gattaca. Oh, yeah. Um, Ethan Hawke. Yeah, yeah. Ethan Hawke's My Boy. It's a movie. I'm just realizing I'm naming this. I think it's all white people. I don't think there's a <laughs> same. No, maybe the doctor. I think the doctor is black. But Ethan Hawke's the shit. So yeah. But okay. Ethan Hawke is, he's amazing. And I really relate to him, this idea of like not letting your biology define you. And then also just like all the social commentary of that movie and how that's coming into play. Like I love that movie so much. I really relate to Ethan Hawke. Did you know, more recently, the same director made a movie with Justin Timberlake? What? I no. look it up. It, it actually is not bad. And the shtick of it, it, it's a near future dystopia sort of thing. But it has to do with like time and money. Time is a currency. It's it's actually, if you like Attica, you will like the next version with Justin Timberlake. It sounds weird. Oh. Trust me. I'm going to have to check that out. We'll put it in the show um, notes. This is not speed round, but like the more recent example is Kamala Khan, Miss Miss Marvel. Dude, Just, you are uh, you are after my heart, man. Uh, <laughs> she's uh, after my... her and Miles Morales are two of the most oh. important new characters in the last yes. 20 years. Full stop. And two of the most popular yes. new characters in the last 20 years. And I cannot wait until Miss Marvel's on Disney Plus next year. What is your favorite mom dish? Oh, Oh, wow. I don't think I've ever gotten that question before. My mom makes a a really good biryani. And the thing about biryani, if anyone hasn't had one, it's like a rice dish, but it has a lot of meats and vegetables. And it's kind of like a stew. It takes a very long time to make. 
and all those ingredients become this new flavor that is inexplainable. And every family has their unique take on biryani. And so that dish is one of my favorites. And I, I think it's it's because it takes so much time and it's yeah. so unique to each family. Like, I can't be like, oh, yeah, like, New Anne's mom makes a great biryani because, one, she's Vietnamese and she doesn't. <laughs> but, two, like, it would be a different thing. Like, right. It, yeah. I, I have a question. Right. So, I think no matter your ethnicity, unless your mom is a really bad cook, we all think our mom's cooking is really good, right? Right. So, and I would assume you probably think your mom's biryani is the best. and It's the best. That's that's fair. Um, it's wrong, but it's fair. <laughs> but okay, so I go to these Indian parties and all their potlucks and all the aunties are making their food. And it's clear that some of the aunties food is not good. Like yeah, yeah. Which Super, auntie we're talking about, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And do you think that their kids know that their parents' food is bad? Or are they blinded by their love for their mom dish? So my wife knows and calls out her mom for being a really bad cook. Oh, I thought um, I liked your wife. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> her her dad is actually the better cook of the two of them. Okay. Okay. But her mom wouldn't let her dad cook much because <laughs> she thought that he's too dirty of a cook and too messy and adds too much like butter and stuff like that. <laughs> which is probably why it tastes good. <laughs> so there's some kids out there who like definitely are like my mom sucks or my dad sucks at this cooking. But I don't know. Like, I didn't really like my mom's cooking until I went to college. And yeah, then same. I was like, I didn't have it. And I had all this bland food. And I went home and my mouth felt so alive and the smells and all that stuff. And the first time you go back home from being away from college, you're like, maybe, well, maybe your parents are like this. They like treat you to so much stuff. And oh, man. Yeah. It took I me remember- a while to love it. The first time I brought my wife, she's Chinese-American. I brought her home. I, I don't know if we were married, but it was a trip home, right, to my parents' house in Alabama. And we're North Indian, Punjabi. And my mom brought out all the favorites because her son was coming home with either his fiance or his wife, whatever my wife was at the time. And um, it's all the fried bread dishes. <laughs> and my oh. wife, as we're driving back to the airport after three days of this, she's like, is this what you ate every day growing up? Or, <laughs> you know, all I ate was dollar rice, dollar rice. Right, like right. Oh, same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, totally, totally. One of the times where my wife was visiting my family, they made so much stuff. And then, like, they had randomly at 3 p.m., they, like, made her a smoothie. And they're like, here, New Anne, enjoy this. And, and New Anne's like, this is great, but, like, did you just always have 3 p.m. smoothies growing up? And I was like, no, they're doing this for you. Yeah, parents change once they know their kids are in good shape. They they go from being like mean and strict to like super nice. <laughs> right, like here's here's all the foods. So what's your least favorite food? I, I like a lot of stuff. There's a lot of fishes I don't like. So when my mom was actually pregnant with me, she started to get really nauseous whenever she smelled fish. And up until that point, she used to eat fish all the time. But after that point, she never ate fish ever again. And so I just didn't grow up with fish. Mm. And when Nuana and I started dating, she ate a lot of fish and she ate a lot of pork. And I did not eat pork. So I had to learn how to eat fish. And so I did like my own psychological behavior modification <laughs> exposure program on myself to to be able to eat fish and there's a lot of fish i like i love most sushis i love a lot of fish but there's also like like 
really fishy stuff i i can't and i don't like scallops and i i don't really like clams i don't like that kind of stuff i don't like oysters i've had like cooked oysters in from in new orleans and they were just amazing but i think that's mostly because it was like fried or something but like raw oysters it feels like you are biting into the ocean like why would you ever want to do that no thanks no thank you i can understand that i i enjoy raw oysters but i totally understand that sentiment i get it i think like if you sharon did you have a lot of raw oysters like growing up was it something not growing up it's more of like an adult thing but i think like what I like Sharon's about fancy. Sharon's fancy. when I eat them, I just put like a lot of stuff on it, right? So whatever the the different sauces are, or I'll put cocktail sauce on it. So I'm not actually tasting the oceaniness of it, as you're saying. It's a sauce um, delivery vehicle. Got it. Yeah, that's yeah. what I feel about crabs and lobsters. Like people yeah. love that stuff, and I'm like, first off, this is a lot of work to get to a lot of very little meat, yeah. and number two, it's like actually a calorie negative. <laughs> oh, t- totally, totally. Right. It's like yeah. celery. Yeah. You lose like yeah. eating it, yeah. <laughs> right, right. But then everyone's like, "Well, you got to dip it in butter and stuff." I'm like, "Well, anything you dip in butter is going to taste better." So what am I doing here? True, <laughs> totally true. <laughs> <laughs> Who is someone out there that you'd want to talk to on a podcast? So many people, so many people. Kate Redford Jameson is someone who is a psychologist who wrote a memoir called An Unquiet Mind. And she revealed kind of to the world that she's a psychologist who has expertise in bipolar depression. And she herself has bipolar depression and has struggled with that many times throughout her life. Bipolar depression is something that runs in my family. My brother had bipolar disorder. He ended up dying of it. He took his own life many years ago. And it's something that is very near and dear to my heart. I've seen her speak in person, Kay Redford Jameson. And I even got to ask her a question. And I remember her response. It was very thoughtful and kind and compassionate. I would love to talk to her and ask her, about her journey revealing all of that about herself because she did it in a time when there was no YouTube, there weren't podcasts. It wasn't as easy to tell your story and there were many more professional implications to doing so. So I'd love to hear more about that, about how she found the courage to do that and how people responded in those early days. Hmm. What does being a modern minority mean to you? I think it means knowing your history, owning it, and lifting up your community and others and being authentic to like who you are. I think it's like some combination of of all of those things. I think all of those pieces have to be in place. You got to know where you're from, where your people are from. You have to be able to lift up others. It's like when people are calling you out. I got this all the time as a kid. Like, oh, you're so whitewash. Like, you're into all that white people music. It's like, well, hold on. Why are we putting ourselves into these pegs? And why are we recreating all the discrimination that we have experienced ourselves? So it's that. It's living authentically. It's all of that kind of stuff. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it absolutely does. I 
Doctor, I feel like we could talk for hours, but then I'd get a bill. So we didn't even <laughs> talk about Star Trek. Oh my god! So we, we hope you'll come back Star and we can Trek. we can have another conversation. But in all oh, seriousness, man. I. I love not obviously not just your style and your way of storytelling and, and sharing, but the fact that you're using your powers for good and you're trying to scale, be it uh, YouTube, be it the startup, be it whatever the next shiny crypto metaverse 3D printing thing is going to be. <laughs> I, it, it means a lot to so many people that you're doing the work the way you do it. And we, we hope you'll keep it up. Thanks for being here. We loved it. Absolutely loved it. Thank you. I think I'm too in the thick of it now to change what I'm doing. <laughs> it's it's going to be, there's going to be more of it. I have no idea how these things will evolve, but I, I know what my North Star is. And my North Star is always to find ways to give and share this to a larger group of people. And, and part of that is being able to come on shows like this one and talk to you all about this stuff. So thanks for having me. I, I, this has been like just such a joy. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review and a five star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us, hi mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. That's it for now. I've been Ramin Segel. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. Ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.